As most of you know, we're in the middle of a sermon series where we are unpacking our church's core values. Those values are on the front of your bulletin every Sunday. They are gospel, people, and mission. So this will be the sixth sermon in our series and the third sermon on the second value, how we value people. Two weeks ago, I said we first value people by loving them. We want to love people, people in our church, in our community, in our neighborhood, people in the womb, people with a lot, people with a little, just people, which means if you are in the people category, our hope is that you feel loved at Enid MB Church. We want to love people. Paul in Romans chapter 12 laid out some really good practical ways that we can do that, and we examine those ways together. And then last week I said we also value people by connecting them. People are made for other people. God declared in the beginning that it is not good for man to be alone. And though we have a tendency to isolate ourselves, we actually do best, we are at our best in community. As Eugene Peterson says, we are not ourselves by ourselves. And that's true. English poet William Blake wrote, I sought my soul, but my soul I could not see. I sought my God, but my God eluded me. I, sat, I sought my brother, and I found all three. I like that. The church is a place of deep connection for people. Not just friendship, not just social events and small talk, but something the Bible calls fellowship. Remember, we said fellowship is intentional partnership and kinship rooted in a shared belief in Jesus Christ. This is why we, we, we come in here from all over the place this morning. Blue collar and white collar, Farm family, Air Force family, public school, private school, Democrat, Republican, east side of town, west side of town. None of that matters because we can come into this place and do ministry and encourage one another and serve one another because we have a shared belief in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only thing profound enough to hold a people as different as you all, as messed up as you all together. Nothing else could do it. No shared preference or shared experience could do it. Only Jesus Christ. He binds us together. So we want to love people, connect people, and today we're going to finish up unpacking this people value as we talk about what it looks like to be a church that cares about growing people. We want to see people grow. Because the Bible is full of references concerning spiritual growth and maturity. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2, the, the, the apostle Peter, he writes to believers, he says, crave spiritual milk so that you might grow into the fullness of your salvation. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 3, may the Lord make your love grow and overflow. In 2 Thessalonians Paul commands the church because their faith, or excuse me, he commends the church because their faith is flourishing and they are all growing in their love for each other. Paul tells his protege, Timothy, train yourself to be godly. The writer of Hebrews says, let us become mature. And on and on and on I could go. The New Testament is constantly urging the church, urging individual Christians toward growth, toward maturity in Christ. So just as the church is growing throughout the world, just as the global body of Christ grows in, in breadth and in number, the individual members in that body are to grow as well, and there might even be some correlation between those two things. Christian maturity is important because growth gives evidence to life. A pulpit doesn't grow 
If it did, you wouldn't be able to see me anymore. A pulpit doesn't grow. A pew doesn't grow. But you, you're meant to grow. I would be greatly concerned if my seven-year-old son, Jack Dallas, if he didn't grow. If, if that were the case, we'd, we'd have him checked out. Maybe there's some serious condition that is I- impeding his physical growth. Well, lack of spiritual growth and maturity is a really serious condition as well. Stunted spiritual growth, it robs Christians of joy, of peace, of their ability to love one another, and ultimately it serves to warn you, warn you of possible hypocrisy and apostasy. Now, we won't all grow at the same rate or at the same time or in the same ways, but if over the long haul, over years and decades, if we cannot see spiritual growth and maturity, then I think we can say there's a huge, huge problem. If you are a person who is not gradually becoming more grateful, more generous, more patient, more loving, more self-controlled, if you're not progressing in those fruits of the Spirit, just like you diagnose a child who isn't growing, or, or the soil in a field that won't grow a crop. If you're not gradually but tangibly maturing, you need to look deeply into your soul, you need to do some diagnosis, and you need to seek the grace and mercy of Jesus. Because here's the truth. When the gospel is preached and the Holy Spirit is at work, growth happens. When the gospel is preached and the Holy Spirit is at work, growth happens happens. We, we can see this both corporately as, as a church grows in size, size and also individually as Christians will grow in their own maturity. So this morning I'm going to talk about three ways that people grow. I'm going to use two different texts of scriptures to do it, one from Hebrews, one from Second Peter, and the outline is going to go like this. People grow in the greenhouse of community. People grow when grace and knowledge increase. And then people grow when growth isn't the goal. So let's dive into that first point. People grow in the greenhouse of community. This first point intentionally connects with how I closed last week's message. You remember I said, I said that the benefit of being closely connected in Christian fellowship is spiritual maturity. I actually said, and I quote, you won't know God intimately without a connection to a fellowship of believers. I'm not saying you can't be a Christian. I'm not saying your faith isn't real. I'm just saying the growth that flows from intimacy with God simply won't be present. It just won't. John Wesley once said, there is nothing more unchristian than a solitary Christian. Why? Why do I keep pressing this point about fellowship and maturity and spiritual growth? Let's read Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13. The writer says, exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Verse 14, for we have come to share in Christ. There's that that common ground we have, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So the, the writer of Hebrews is saying to believers, you have to live your life in a way where every day you're encouraging and being encouraged in the Lord where you are exhorting and spurring one another on, where you are reminding each other of the truth of the gospel. Every day you need this. Every day. Now remember, this verse, this is written before texting and email and Facebook. You know, this culture is largely illiterate. You know, given all those factors, to exhort one another every day, 
was to have meaningful contact each and every day. So it's easy to conclude from Hebrews that what Christians need is intentional, close-knit community, that, that fellowship that we've been talking about. And if we don't have that, what happens? The text tells us. What happens is we'll be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Underline deceitfulness. Deceitfulness. That means sin won't boldly and grossly appear before us and sort of grab a hold of us. No, it will deceive us. It will trick us into thinking that that fellowship with those people is just awkward and unnecessary. It will fool us into thinking that, that confessing sin to one another, that would just be outrageous and embarrassing. It will deceive us. And once it's done that, it will harden us. So even if you study your Bible consistently and listen to the best podcast preachers and, and read systematic theology books, even if, you get, even if you've got all that going on, but if you're not in community with other serious believers, you will be deceived and hardened. That's what this verse implies. Not actually growing, but stunted. Stunted by sin. Which sin exactly? Well, generally speaking, I think your self-centeredness, your selfishness, that sin. Because when you think about it, when, when the selfish person comes to church, they don't like it. And that's because they've not given themselves to it. And when you haven't given yourself to it, you can only be critical of it, critical of its music or its people or what people are wearing or, or the prayer requests that people are sharing. It all just seems so beneath them. And so those people hop around. They look for a church that might be good enough for them, but it's an impossible game. They never find it because their conceit won't allow them to. Listen to C.S. Lewis on this. He, He outlines this eloquently. He says, When I first became a Christian about 14 years ago, I thought that I could do it on my own by retiring to my rooms and reading theology. And I wouldn't go to the churches and gospel halls I dislike very much their hymns, which I consider to be fifth-rate poems set to sixth-rate music. But as I went on, I saw the great merit of it. I came up against different people with quite different outlooks and different education, and and then gradually my conceit just began peeling off. I realized that the hymns I held in contempt were nevertheless being sung with devotion and benefit by an old saint in elastic side boots in the opposite pew. And then I realized that I'm not fit to clean those boots. It gets you out of your solitary conceit. Committing to a local church, it, 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 as, in, as he says here, as Lewis lays out, it breaks you out of your solitary conceit. It focuses your heart on the needs of other people, people you're not even sure you like. And if your attention is given to the needs of others, that can do nothing but, but grow you and mature you. If you've been here any time at all, you may know that we have something called life groups. And they serve, these life groups, they serve an important purpose. And whether you're in one or not, let me tell you how they benefit our people. They connect people, like I said last week. But more than that, they take people who might not have otherwise been friends, 
And because of that shared relationship with Christ, these people then spend themselves serving and loving and praying for one another, exhorting one another, as the text says. And through that consistent exercise, people, these people involved in these life groups, they're less likely to remain self-centered and sin-deceived. Are life groups a tough commitment? Yes, they are. Because you're committing to people you might not choose to commit to if it were entirely up to you. These might not be the people you'd call your best friends, but at the same time, they are supremely valuable people. Why? Because your commitment to one another can keep you from the deceit of sin. That's not my opinion. That's what I'm reading in Hebrews chapter 3. Biblical community is like a greenhouse. A greenhouse. The, The environment of a greenhouse is designed so that things will grow. Biblical community is the environment we need to grow. A greenhouse, it maintains the right temperature and the right light exposure and the right moisture so that the fragile plants in a greenhouse, so that they're shielded from the harsh elements. In a greenhouse, things grow. So just as a plant needs time and light and moisture to grow, so it is with each of us. Pastor Ray Ortland says, people who come into the church, they need the gospel plus safety plus time. Write that down. The gospel plus safety plus time. Again, what is the gospel? The gospel is the good news for bad people. It's the truth that repentant sinners can be forgiven of any sin at any time on the basis of the life and blood of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. And you and I, we need continual exposure to the gospel, constant immersion, wave upon wave of grace and truth. If you've had enough of the gospel, then you're in the wrong church because we're not going to let up on the gospel. We're just not. What is safety? Safety is a non-accusing environment, not embarrassing anyone, no manipulation, no oppression, no condescension, no shame, just respect and sympathy and understanding and compassion, a gospel culture where sinners can safely confess and unburden their souls. What is time? No pressure, no deadlines on growth. Yes, there's urgency because growth is important, but there's not hurry because no one, as you know, changes quickly. God, God we know, is patient. That's how a church that acts like a greenhouse has to be, an environment that oozes gospel, provides safety, and gives plenty of time. If we provide that, then through the Spirit's power, we'll grow. Each of us will. Let's move to the second point. People grow when grace and knowledge increase. I'm going to read 2 Peter 3, verses 17 and 18. Peter writes, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Now, People's last words are always important. They are. William Wallace, the 13th century Scottish patriot, his, his final words, or in, or in his case, his final word was the cry, freedom. Remember that? Freedom. Stonewall Jackson, who had been inadvertently shot by his own men, he said, let us pass over the river and rest under the shade of trees. Martin Luther, who finished this life With a simple but profound statement, he said, We are beggars. This is true. And of course, there's Jesus, 
Jesus Christ, who roared from the cross to Telestai, it is finished. And then he breathed his last. Well, these words I just read from 2 Peter 3, these are Peter's last words. Grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory now and forever. Amen. Peter was executed during the reign of Nero in 68 AD, crucified upside down. Probably happened shortly after writing these words. Peter's dying wish is to see Christians growing. Why is this important to Peter? Verse 17 tells us. Because lawless people, the people that Peter had been warning them about and correcting through the entire letter of Second Peter, he says they threaten to carry you away. They cause you to lose your stability. I think you read the New Testament, you read the epistles, and you get the impression that there's no neutral in the Christian life. You're either growing or being carried away, maturing or being deceived by sin, becoming more stable or more unstable. Peter's desire to see Christians growing is the realization that the world around you is always trying to get you to buy into its error. And so you're either giving in to the world's thinking or you're growing in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Those are the two postures in front of you. So let's unpack that little phrase. Let's talk through what it means to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. How do we grow in grace? Well, let's first think about what grace is. Grace is God bestowing favor upon us even though we don't deserve it. Grace is God bestowing favor on us even though we don't deserve it. So how do we grow in grace if grace is in God's hands to dispense? Isn't our growing in grace sort of up to him then? If it's undeserved, how do we acquire it? Do we acquire it by, by just becoming more and more undeserving, by, by rebelling and, and, and sinning more? Is that how we get more grace? No. Paul said, shall we keep on sinning so that grace may abound? By no means. No, that's not the way at it. I think we grow in grace not by becoming more undeserving, but by grasping every day how undeserving we already are. Here's the litmus test. If you can sing Amazing Grace and not identify very closely with the word wretch, then you need to grow in grace. If the wretch is another person, or that's John Newton because he was the author of the hymn, and not you, if you're not the wretch, then you need to grow in grace. Furthermore, a person who has grown in grace they understand that suffering and pain and loss and trial, all those horrible things are also grace. Let me illustrate. Back to our greenhouse illustration. You know what really makes plants grow? Manure. Manure. So sometimes you have to go through, fill in your favorite euphemism for manure, you have to go through that to really grow. And you know what? That manure, that trial, that suffering, that's grace. That's also grace. Growing takes grace. Grace upon grace, and that grace comes in all different shapes and sizes. Sometimes it's kindness 
And sometimes it's ruthless. So if you continue to see yourself as undeserving of God's gracious love and mercy, you know what? You're going to continue to grow in grace. Grace won't just be what saved you. It'll be attached to everything in your life. You'll see grace everywhere. And through that, you'll be growing in grace. It also has this radical way of making you a gracious person. That you can give grace to others. That's another sermon. Peter then says, though, in verse 18, we are also to grow in knowledge. And this point, I think, has more obvious handles than maybe growing in grace. How do we grow in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? Chiefly, I think, by looking to where Christ is revealed, the Scriptures. Which means your spiritual growth is connected to your increased knowledge of God's Word. Which means, at Enid MB, we're going to commit ourselves to teaching the Bible. And the flip side of that commitment is we're going to aspire, we're going to grow in our knowledge of Jesus Christ. So practically then, what's that commitment look like? Well, here's just a few ways. About a year and a half ago, our children's Sunday school curriculum, it was changed. We went from a curriculum that focused on Bible stories to, to, to a curriculum that teaches our children sort of the story arc of the Bible. So not the Bible in isolated freeze frames, but the unified whole. And what that means is this. Gone are the lessons that say to our kids, you need to be brave because Daniel was brave and David was brave. No. It's a curriculum that fits those stories into God's redemptive activity in history. And that's a huge difference. The old curriculum was about how you can be a better person. The new curriculum is about how God has purpose to save a people through the redeeming work of his son, underscoring along the way that every scene in the Bible is pointing us to Jesus, every story connecting to the gospel. Said more plainly, you better understand the stories when you, when you see the whole story. So that's one way. Growing in knowledge also looks like our Awana ministry. That starts this Wednesday night, Awana. This church will just be a beehive of activity starting about 6 o'clock. And what's the purpose of Awana? To, to get God's word into the hearts and minds of our kids. Because when kids memorize scripture, they don't forget it. I forget it. They don't forget it. That truth just gets locked into their brains for life, resulting in them growing in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And then one other way, one other commitment to growing in the knowledge of Jesus Christ is expository preaching. I've had a couple of people ask me in the last few weeks, well, what, what is expository preaching? You keep using that word. Well, that's what I've committed us to at Enid MB Church. Expository preaching happens when a preacher lays open a biblical text so that its original meaning is brought to bear in the lives of contemporary listeners. It's a commitment to deliver from the pulpit what has already been delivered in the Scriptures. And because we want to see people grow, we have sold out to that kind of preaching. Why? Because a steady diet of God's Word is better for you than the life tips and the success strategies that I could come up with. I'm not creative enough, I'm not pulled together enough to be constantly coming up with a new four-week sermon series on how you can be a better you. That'll get you nowhere. You know, this, 
this core value series has been a huge stretch for me. I am not good at preaching this way. But picking a book of the Bible, getting super familiar with its author, its context, its purpose, its theme, just working through it, that makes sense, and that's what's going to make you grow long-term. And it's what makes me grow as one who gets to deliver it to you weekly. Dan Dumas, he's the pastor of Eastside Community Church in Louisville, Kentucky, he confirms this when he writes, if God's people are going to be presented mature in Christ, he's citing Colossians 1.28, if God's people are going to be presented mature in Christ, then biblical expository preaching needs to return to the sacred desk of local churches. He goes on to say, a funny thing happens when preachers start preaching the Bible. Their people start to want more of it. They can't get enough of it. They want to hear more preaching and more teaching. They want to learn how to get more out of a sermon. They want to to know how to read and study the Bible for themselves. They want to know what resources to take advantage of in their personal study. He's exactly right. Which leads me to say this. you got to know, I have no desire for you to leave here on a Sunday morning and say, man, that was a really creative sermon. Or gosh, that that was a really powerful presentation that Jay made today. No, I want you to leave here saying, man, God's word is powerful. Jesus Christ is mighty to save. That's what you need to leave here saying. Because here's the deal. The Bible's not a magic book you open sort of for, for random, in-the-moment spiritual guidance. It, it's, it's, it's not an archive of, of Hallmark cards you know, full of these inspirational thoughts. It's, it's not a, a prescription for moral self-improvement. It is God's special revelation, which is to say it's how God speaks to us. It's breathed out by him, which is to say, it's the word of God. Point being, when I preach scripture, when you read scripture, we are confronted by the voice of God. Therefore, when we come to scripture, whether, we, whether preached or read, we should expect, we should really expect to be changed by it. We should expect it to push us and grow us. We should Expect it to somehow shape us more fully into the image of Jesus Christ. Growing in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus requires just a radical commitment to his word. Teaching it, reading it, discussing it, understanding it. Last point, very briefly. People grow when growth isn't the goal. 2 Peter three eighteen, the second half of that verse there. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. People who exhibit spiritual growth, they grow not because they love to grow. They grow because they love the glory of Jesus Christ. Only four of the New Testament's 21 epistles end in a doxology, a glory statement. And this is one of them. To him be the glory. To him. Not to us. We don't want the glory. We don't want a bunch of mature people in this church just to have a bunch of awesome people around. No, we know, as I already said, we know that we are wretched sinners, that we're wholly dependent on God's grace. There's nothing impressive about us or our growth. We want God's glory. There are no heroes in this church. Sure, there's some good examples, honorable men and women, but the glory in this church doesn't belong to them. It goes to Jesus Christ. Ultimately, my point, if you are passionately obsessed with Jesus Christ, that is both the fuel 
and product of your spiritual growth. The fuel of your spiritual growth is a passion for the glory of Christ. The product of your spiritual growth is more glory for Christ. People who grow to be the best at at, at basketball or baseball or golf, why are they so good? Why have they committed their lives to, to, to being the best? For most of them, it's because they love the game. They couldn't do it if they didn't love the game. Getting to that level demands way too much of them. It's too hard. You've got to love the game. Same with your life and mine. The goal of our spiritual growth is not to get inducted into some Christian hall of fame. That would be the lamest place ever. No, growth and maturity is for the glory of Jesus Christ, to exalt him and his name. That's why we were made Westminster Confession says the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Pastor John Piper tacks an an exclamation point on the end of that statement when he writes, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. Our satisfaction in Him is what leads to our growth. That satisfaction in Him brings Him more glory. It's all interconnected. And some of you are sitting here today going, man, I'm not connecting with this. And maybe it's because you've been seeking your satisfaction in your career or in some relationships or in the different, you know, sort of stuff that you're able to pile up and acquire or your bank balance or whatever. Like you're looking to that all the time to give you satisfaction and joy and peace. And, and, and you know what? Agree with me now. That keeps falling short, doesn't it? That doesn't work. That doesn't bring you satisfaction. It doesn't bring you peace. It doesn't bring you joy. Ultimately, That's because only Jesus does. And so if you're in need of satisfaction, you look to Jesus Christ. He will fill you up, and as he fills you up, you don't become awesome. He becomes more awesome. It's like in the Narnia books. You remember as Lucy, the the youngest of of the children, as she grows through the Narnia books, what happens to Aslan? He grows. She keeps pointing out, Aslan just keeps getting bigger and bigger. That's what happens in our lives as we grow in maturity. We don't sort of catch up to Jesus. No, he gets bigger and bigger in his glory and his magnificence. I love that we're arriving there sort of as a close to this sermon because in the next three weeks, we're going to talk about missions. We're going to talk about the biblical basis for missions. We're going to talk about global missions and local missions. And you know what's the fuel for missions? God's glory is the fuel for missions. If we want to see God glorified throughout the earth, we're going to be committed, radically committed, to seeing the gospel go everywhere to every person in every place. It's his glory that's at stake. So that's going to be our next three weeks. But today, I'm going to circle back as we come to the communion table. And as we think about what it means to grow in grace, the Lord's table it actually leads us to grow in grace. It's a means of grace, some have called it. Because it points to what had to happen for us to be forgiven of our sin and be reconciled to holy God. It points us directly that way. Reflecting on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, it simultaneously shows us the gross nature of our sin and the radical nature 
of God's love for us. To put it in the words of Timothy, Kel- Timothy Keller, it shows us that we are more sinful than we could have ever imagined and more loved than we could have ever hoped. So think on that. Think on that, those amazing, gracious ideas as we gather around this table this morning. I'd ask our deacons to go ahead and come forward, prepare to serve the meal. As I've mentioned before, we practice open communion here at Enid Enby Church, which means you don't need to be a member of our church to take communion with us today. I would like to say you do need to be a believer in Jesus Christ, someone who has put their trust in Jesus as their sin bearer, as their Lord, as their only hope in life and death. If you've never done that, then we invite you just to observe us as we take this together. If you have done that, whether you're a member here or not, just enjoy. If you've never taken it with us, uh, if this is your first time to take it here at this church, we'll pass an element, you'll hold it, we'll take it together. We'll pass another element, you'll hold it, we'll take it together. I'll walk you through it. I, uh, you, won't, you won't miss a beat, all right?